KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, the police shutting down of the homeless encampment at Echo Park Lake, Ananya Roy of UCLA will comment. And Ella Taylor, our TV and film critic, will talk about The Man Who Sold His Skin, the Tunisian film that's been nominated for an Academy Award. But first... For nearly half a century, America's leading corporations have offshored work to lands where labor is cheap, and they've also offshored profits to lands where taxes are low. Now, Joe Biden and the Democrats are trying to do something about that. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, of course, global corporations are nothing new, but many nations agreeing on a common set of standards to regulate global corporations, that is new. What exactly are Joe Biden and the Democrats proposing? Well, they're proposing a number of things. Uh, In terms of getting countries to agree uh, to uh, really kind of stamp out the renegade countries that uh, offer very low tax rates to corporations uh, if they move their profits over to those countries, as often is the case in, uh, in Ireland, in some, <coughs> excuse me, as often is the case in Ireland, in some Caribbean island nations, in Luxembourg, and so on. Uh, It's new for uh, the world's major economies to agree on a standard rate and try to have that enforced. So Janet Yellen, Joe Biden's new Treasury Secretary, has made a proposal to the OECD, uh, which is an organization of uh, most of the world's large economies. I think there are about 35 member nations. Uh, that would have them uh, endeavor to set standardized tax rates on uh, on corporations. Uh, I don't think it's an accident that separately in the tax proposal he unveiled today, uh, on Wednesday, I should say, President Biden uh, called for a corporate tax rate of 28%, which is a hike over the 21% that was established by the Trump tax cut in in 2017. It's not an accident because the average rate in most OECD nations is around 28%. So this is sort of our contribution to the standardization, but it's it's really kind of a bigger deal than that because in a sense, corporations were able to go global before uh, there was any global government to standardize anything, before there certainly and still a case uh, before there's any really global labor movement to enforce uh, a uniform set of, of uh, labor rights and, and worker rights and standards. So uh, uh, I, I think this, if it succeeds, is, is a real step forward. And, you know, there's a uh, kind of a historic precedent for this. Um, there was a time when all business was local and pretty much all government was local. Uh, And then uh, in the mid-19th century came the railroads, which quickly 
you know, ran across state lines and, and, and weren't local. And they were followed by the early steel companies and the early meatpacking companies. And there was no federal government response to get a uniform set of regulations uh, on, on these entities. In a sense, government in this country didn't really go national until the 1930s, until the New Deal, which, uh, which set standards uh, for uh, uh, nationwide corporations. So in a sense, we're sort of trying to repeat that now uh, uh, in which corporations having gone global first, uh, governments are playing catch up. So this is a proposal that will raise corporate taxes. The Republicans are against raising corporate taxes. Will they be able to filibuster this to death in the Senate? Probably not. Uh, uh, there was a ruling by the Senate parliamentarian that really uh, permits uh, multiple bills, not just one per year, uh, to go through under the Senate's budget reconciliation rule, which stipulates that there are some bills that have a fiscal impact on the budget that can't be subjected to the 60 vote cloture rule, and in essence, the filibuster rule, and therefore can pass with 51 votes, which if all the Democrats in the Senate uh, vote for it and uh, Vice President Kamala Harris breaks the tie, it can pass. Uh, and I also think there's some political consequences for the Republicans in opposing this. So uh, I, I think that's a, that's a major factor. I mean, the Republicans increasingly have been saying they're the real champions of the working class uh, because they share their cultural values. Uh, and, uh, you know- to which, uh, to which we say, ha. Right, to which we say, <laughs> ha. Uh, and uh, the Republicans have nonetheless, our, our ha notwithstanding, <laughs> have been able to win a, a somewhat larger share of the working class vote than uh, has long been the case. Now, you know, part of the essence of the working class appeal the Republicans make is, is nationalism. But if they're opposed to tax regulations that would incentivize domestic production uh, and uh, would uh, slow or maybe even stop the flight of uh, major American corporations overseas, uh, I think that creates uh, a political problem for them. I mean, who is the, you choose your word, nationalist or patriot now, the Democrats or the Republicans? Since the Democrats tax legislation uh, really would benefit uh, the domestic workforce as with the whole Biden infrastructure package and the Republicans, that creates an election issue that uh, erodes uh, some of the Republicans appeal to some of the working class folks who have been inclined, more inclined lately to, to vote Republican than they have in the past. In your little historical review, you took us um, up to the 1930s. I'd like to go up into the present here. Since corporate offshoring began in the 70s, there have been democratic presidents with democratic majorities in Congress, but there have been no effective proposals to bring investment back home, none. Uh, why was that and what has changed now? Well, quite the contrary. I mean, if you remember NAFTA uh, passed uh, in response 
to both business and Bill Clinton's uh, prompting. Um, so did, uh, uh, permanent normal trade relations with China, which I think uh, may be looked at as something of a world historic disaster uh, from the point of view of the American worker, uh, passed with, with major democratic support. There's always been an interesting split on this. The presidential wing of the Democratic Party has historically been for what's called free trade, up to and including Barack Obama's promotion of the Pacific, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which did not get enacted. Um, the Senate Democrats have usually gone along with this. House Democrats, who are closer uh, to the people living in their district uh, and whose districts, depending on what industries are in them, can be really uh, knocked for a loop uh, if they deindustrialize. House Democrats have always, a majority have always voted against these deals, but they've always been enough Democrats in the Senate and uh, the last three in the White House, Carter, Clinton, Obama, to support, uh, to support this. I think what we're really looking at is a change in economic situation and a change in the zeitgeist. I mean, I think historians looking back on the Carter, Clinton, and Obama presidencies will say that despite um, a lot of good intentions from those three presidents, they were presidents in the Reagan era of American politics, of the exhaustion of government uh, being proclaimed, whether it was exhausted or not, and uh, the rise of, uh, of markets or more realistically corporate power uh, during that period. Um, and, you know, the Democratic Party finally has uh, looked back and said, gee, that hasn't worked out so well for the nation and it hasn't worked out so well for us. Um, and you're seeing a shift in the party that is being reflected in uh, party man, uh, President Joe Biden. Uh, and uh, so this is, this is a real reversal uh, of democratic policy of uh, the last uh, 35 years or 40 years. And would you say that Trump also contributed to the end of the age of Reagan? Yes and no. Uh, Trump's tax cuts were an absolute continuation of the age of Reagan. If, if uh, you know, Reagan cut the highest rate on taxes uh, from in the 50s percent to the 20s percent, and Trump uh, essentially was uh, went went lower than that. Um, and you know, in the real world, when we talk about oh, the burden on corporations having to have their taxes raised, in the real world, um, 55 of the 500 of, of the five uh, the, the corporations on the Fortune 500 list paid no taxes last year, 26 of them, including Nike and FedEx, paid no taxes in the year since the Trump uh, tax cut passed in 2017. So if we get real, the actual rate of uh, taxation of uh, US-based corporations is about 8%. Um, you know, so, uh, so they're, they're, Trump certainly did not uh, go against Reagan in, in matters of taxes. But the nationalism that he expressed and very inexpertly endeavored to do something about, mainly by a series of unrelated discrete uh, policies against China, um, that, was, uh, that was a departure uh, from Reagan, which was all free trade all the time. Uh, but Biden is going about that in a much more effective and systematic way. The bill that we're talking about that was just introduced um, in the Senate has three authors. Uh, 
Sherrod Brown, the Ohio progressive who is our hero, Oregon liberal Ron Wyden, no surprise, and a third one, Mark Warner of Virginia. I've never thought of Mark Warner as another Sherrod Brown. What's going on here? Well, he's not another Sherrod Brown. And uh, I think that one of the purposes of that bill, which is distinct from the Biden proposal, uh, it's, it's just adding more uh, elements to the stew. Um, the, the purpose of Warner being on it is to signal that, hey, we can really bring in pretty much the entire Senate Democratic caucus on something. There are some particulars in that proposal, which may have been the price for getting Warner on it, that actually aren't quite so strong as those in the Biden proposal. And so all this is yet to be worked out in committee anyway. But I, I think uh, the Democrats have realized that, uh, you know, that their, the support of key figures in their party over the last 40 years, that is to say the presidential and senatorial wings of their party, uh, has not been good for the country and has not been good for their own political prospects. So we've talked about Sherrod Brown, Ron, Ron Wyden, and Mark Warner, which brings us to the inevitable question, what does Joe Manchin want? I see in today's paper that Joe Manchin says he's it's okay with him to raise the corporate tax rate from 21 to 25%, but he won't go to 28. What do you think? Well, you know, that kind of opposition the Democrats can handle. Uh, you know, they can either negotiate with him and get it to 26. <laughs> they can fund a little more of it by uh, uh, taking out debt at the very low interest rates that exist right now. Um, you know, they, they can find uh, perhaps some other revenue uh, component. Uh, but I mean, that's characteristic of Joe Manchin uh, to uh, stake out this, uh, you know, skunk at the garden party uh, <laughs> position. Um, I, I should also add this. I've been struck by the fact that there's some similarity between uh, the partisan standoff in the Senate right now, which gives great power to Joe Manchin, and the situation in California where Democrats control every part of state government. They have veto proof uh, and uh, all kinds of, you know, they have, they have essentially three quarters of the members in each house of the legislature and the governor. The effect of that has been that business in California doesn't even bother to lobby Republicans anymore. They just focus on the more conservative Democrats and they do more than that. When there's an open seat, they back a more conservative Democrat uh, against a more progressive Democrat in California primaries. Um, and in a way, I, I think what you're seeing out of Joe Manchin and, and you know, the other members of the, who are centrist or, or worse in the Democratic Senate caucus, like Arizona's Kristen Sinema, beyond whatever their own inclinations may be and their own sense of what they need to do for their own political survival, uh, they're the ones who are getting lobbied by Wall Street and by business uh, on, on bills that will only require the 51 votes, which is all of the money bills, which is what Wall Street and business really uh, only cares about. Um, so, uh, you know, in a sense, there's no, there's no point lobbying Mitch McConnell on uh, the, the, this tax proposal or this infrastructure bill or what have you. Let's go lobby Joe Manchin because he's going to decide its fate. And so, you know, th that's the odd way in which the Senate standoff resembles this oddity in California. Business goes, 
where they uh, where an imp where the, not just where they can make an impact, but where that impact is going to be decisive. And I want to go back to the uh, the international aspect of this and the and the effort to get a global minimum uh, corporate tax rate. Uh, the shadow of Donald Trump does loom over all of this because, of course, he was you can call him nicely a nationalist. He was for American going it alone. This proposal is the opposite. It requires global coordination. The United States working closely with its allies to establish this international tax rate that would apply to multinational corporations wherever they establish their headquarters. What makes the Democrats think that other countries actually want to coordinate corporate taxes with us? I know you talked about this thing, the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. How significant, how powerful, how real is this? Well, it's not every country in the world. Uh, it's 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 uh, you know not uh, it's it's not China. It's not Russia. Uh, it's not uh, most of the uh, the countries that uh, 100 years ago were colonies. Uh, it's it's pretty much uh, what used to be called and still may be called the West plus the East Asia uh, countries that are uh, not communist, and uh, Mexico and a few other nations as well. I think Turkey uh, is, is, is part of it. Um, so it's a significant block, uh, and it, would, it certainly would affect, I think, what goes on in, in, a, in a country like Ireland. The question is, if they pass it, will they put some kind of sanctions on countries that don't go along? Uh, will this impact uh, what kind of uh, uh, sanctions could be levied on uh, the Cayman Islands, uh, on uh, you know countries like that, on uh, you know Luxembourg? Uh, we 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 don't know. We don't know. Uh, but I think uh, there are a number of nations, not just the United States that know that uh, they are losing uh, billions in tax revenue because of corporate uh, corporations dodging uh, those nations' tax rates by pretending that uh, all of their profit uh, really accrued in, in, in the Grand Duchy of Liechtenstein or something <laughs> like that. Uh, so uh, we, we, we do have allies uh, in this, and it, it, this kind of exposes, as you suggest, the limitations of uh, Donald Trump's nationalism, that you can't even be effectively nationalist by yourself anymore. <laughs> but if, if you want to uh, make things better for the people who live in your country, uh, you really need uh, a government on the scale of uh, the corporations that have gone global, just as if you want if, if Americans wanted to set uh, labor standards that actually benefited them, uh, they had to create the kind of national government that was created under the New Deal, uh, however imperfectly, uh, rather than just let states go it alone. Well, there's a second uh, issue in America today that we need to talk about in addition to global corporate taxation, and that's Matt Gates, the Republican who repre represents the Florida panhandle in the house. He's the one I'm sure you remember who nominated Trump for the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, now we learn that in the final weeks of Trump's term, Matt Gates sought something in 
return for that nomination, he privately asked the White House for a blanket preemptive pardon. Uh, what do you think he needed a pardon for? Well, at the time, nobody, you know, in, in the broader public uh, would have any idea for that since, uh, you know, there's no criminalization of stupidity as such or else <laughs> half the Congress would would be in the clink right now. Uh, but uh, obviously he was looking forward, uh, not looking forward, he was fearing the possibility that uh, his uh, paid for uh, sexual whatever with uh, uh, girls, uh, I, I use think- the word girls because apparently we're talking teenagers here, um, uh, could, could come out. It's also possible that he thought that if Trump won the Nobel Peace Prize, the reward might be a whole group of teenage girls. I don't know. Uh, so uh, uh, we, we, we don't know, uh, you know, what's in the, the fully in the mind of uh, Matt Gates. But apparently, he was so willing to share some of this information with his Florida buddies that uh, it, it's it's beginning to leak out anyway. Well, we must note fairness requires that we note that Mr. Gates has denied having sex with a 17-year-old or paying for sex. Just just uh, co- covering our bases here. That's, that's Trump right. Trump uh, described Gates as being, quote, a great talent, young and handsome, close quote. And he predicted Gates was, quote, going places, close quote. Uh, I don't think he was thinking at that time about Gates going to jail, but he did not give Gates this blanket preemptive pardon, despite the immense support and nomination that Gates gave him. Why, why do you think he didn't? Well, I, this is one of those cases where had he actually pardoned Gates, it would have raised so many questions about Gates and perhaps <laughs> Trump's too, uh, given Trump's own history uh, with uh, Miss Teenage World or whatever contest he was uh, sponsoring. Uh, it, it, it just opened a, a Pandora's box of all kinds of, uh, you know, really kind of yucky, uh, <laughs> yucky is the technical term, yucky things uh, that, that could pop out. And honestly, it's, it's surprise, I'm surprised that Gates asked for it because it only, since, you know, no one in the public was, was aware of this. It, it just sort of suggested, why is this man painting a bullseye on his backside? Uh, <laughs> Harold Meyerson reporting on yucky things in our nation's capital. <laughs> Read him at prospect.org. We need a longer segment to really cover yucky things in the nation's capital, John. Maybe next week. Oh, Thanks for, thank you. Thanks for this week. Thank you, John. Always good to be here. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Protest continues to grow over the displacement by the LAPD of the homeless encampment at Echo Park Lake back on March 26th, which the mayor declared a success. For comment, we turn to UCLA professor Ananya Roy. She teaches urban planning, social welfare, and geography. She's director of the UCLA Luskin Institute on Inequality and Democracy. 
and principal investigator of the National Science Foundation Research Coordination Network on Housing Justice in Unequal Cities. Ananya Roy, welcome to the program. I'm glad to be on it. Well, you met today, we're speaking on Wednesday, with the new deputy mayor in Los Angeles for homeless initiatives, Jose Ramirez. He was responding to a letter to the mayor and city council that you organized, signed by a big group of academics who specialize in urban planning, social work, history, law, public policy, and public health. I was one of them. Uh, let's start with what the Echo Park encampment was before March 26th. It was not just a bunch of homeless people living in tents. Yes, the Echo Park Lake community, and I use the term community quite deliberately, was, as we understand it, an encampment where unhoused residents found refuge, found autonomy, found the possibility of self-determination. In the numerous interviews that now exist, with these um, community residents, they talk about how this was the first place that they felt safe, much more safe than in the congregate and interim shelters that are rarely available in the city, and that they were able to build a space where they took care of each other, including a community garden um, and a kitchen where people cooked to provide collective meals. Uh, and then let's talk about the police action of which the which is the subject of a lot of the protests that are, that are continuing. Uh, our letter lists a lot of problems with the LAPD at Echo Park Lake. First of all, it violated the COVID-19 guidelines of the CDC. Explain what those are. Yes, yeah, so since we are still very much in the time of pandemic, the CDC has had and continues to renew guidelines that call for a halt on all evictions, including those from homeless encampments. And, have, and those guidelines indicate that instead, cities should be providing sanitation services to encampments and supporting them rather than sweeping them or clearing them. And the LA police shutting down the Echo, the Echo Park encampment also violated the UN standards and protocols for adequate housing. I did not know about this. Tell us about that. Yes, so the UN standards and protocols for adequate housing, um, again, ask cities not to undertake the evictions of informal settlements or homeless encampments. Um, not only was this an eviction, it was, as we said in our letter, an eviction at gunpoint, where 400 plus police officers were mobilized in an invasion of the park, an enclosure of the park, and this after a year of uprising about racial justice that has particularly pinpointed the violent role of police. So what we had was a police invasion and riot that underpinned the forced eviction of a community from the park. Now the city regards this as a success because they moved people from tents in Echo Park to hotel rooms, downtown LA. 
are, I think most people would say, well, hotel rooms are a better place to live than tents in a park. Yes, yeah, so one of the reasons why I wanted faculty experts to come together in reflecting on the Echo Park Lake displacement is that I've been very, very troubled by the statements from the mayor's office that this is one of the largest and most successful housing transitions in the history of the city. And that this is being seen as a model, even a playbook for what might come in the future in the city. So I want to be clear that we should be outraged about the police invasion but we should be equally outraged about the illusion that has been created that people have been housed. So excuse the language, I wanna call bullshit on this idea of housing placements. We're gonna have to beep that, but we'll, we will beep it. All right, people can imagine what I said. Yes. Um, I think that the justification of this displacement in the name of housing placements, which a lot of people who are not familiar with these processes would in fact accept and say, oh, how wonderful people were moved and housed. We need to think about what this housing is. The numbers fluctuate across the agencies, but there were about 200 people displaced, most of whom were placed in temporary shelter, Project Room Key, where it is unclear how long they will have this housing, maybe a week, maybe two weeks, <laughs> maybe a month, two months, and that the conditions of these shelters are draconian. So Project Room Key is a hotel room, but despite the name, you never get a room key. You are searched every time you enter the hotel. You are under curfew from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. In some of these places, you can only leave the building between 12 p.m. and 4 p.m. You can't take your tools. You can't, in fact, leave for work at night. You can't take your pet. You can't take more than one suitcase. These are prison-like conditions that are interim shelter and we as a city have decided that this is housing. This is not housing. And we need to think about what it actually means to house people. Now, Project, Project Roomkey got a lot of good, positive uh, attention because the logic of it was, well, under the pandemic, the hotels are all empty. There's hundreds of thousands of empty rooms with, you know, bathrooms and beds and windows and and there's hundreds of thousands of people who need a shelter obviously the city should put the the homeless people in the hotels how what's your view of the side of the bigger picture of project room key as a as an idea i started writing about project room key with gary blazy before there was a project room key <laughs> and we started writing about this because the statewide movement no vacancy called attention to precisely what you just pointed out, that we have about 70,000 unhoused people in LA County, the vast majority of whom are unsheltered. We have about 70,000 empty hotel rooms, including in many hotels that are not going to see tourist business for a very long time. Plus, as early as April 7th, 2020, and this is how much I care about Project Roomkey that I remember these dates. Um, elite law firms and later then also the city attorney of San Francisco made it clear that the mayors of cities have the legal authority during a public health emergency and only during a public health emergency to commandeer hotel rooms, to provide compensation later, but to really be able to commandeer these rooms for the protection of human life. Those rooms were never commandeered in LA and it turns out that the city of LA never even submitted the paperwork 
for the female reinvestments <laughs> that um, were due to Project Roomkey. So I see the role of the city of Los Angeles, particularly the mayor's office, as deliberately turning Project Roomkey into a failure. There are only 1,716 Project Roomkey rooms in operation at the moment, while 15,000 rooms had been promised by the city and would have been funded fully by FEMA money. Wow. Well, now we get to your meeting with the new deputy mayor in charge of homelessness issues, Jose Ramirez. Tell us what happened today, Wednesday. Yes, yeah, so a few of us who signed the letter had an opportunity to meet uh, with Deputy Mayor Jose Ramirez, who goes as Chair Ramirez. Uh, we pointed out that um, our LA Times article this morning had noted um, that he had been um, that he was responsible for coming up with "quote unquote" consistent policy for these kinds of housing transitions. We wanted to find out more about these housing transitions and what policies he had in mind. Um, I, you know, I don't think much came off the meeting. Um, I think we heard what I've already shared with you, which is the same narrative about the fact that uh, we house people. The park was dangerous for them. Uh, it was dangerous for everyone. And we, um, it doesn't matter if it's interim housing, but by placing people in these rooms, we are putting them on a path to housing. And I do think that we heard an indication that this is seen to be a success, possibly even a model. Not surprisingly, the faculty experts who attended that meeting continued to express great concern about these issues and also wanted to see um, a really firm commitment to the fact that people would be housed, those who had been displaced, and that this would not take place at the expense of other people who have been patiently, if you will, waiting in line for either these interim or permanent forms of housing or even for project room key rooms. And uh, I'm not familiar with uh, Jose Ramirez, who's a new appointee. What, what can you tell us about him? Well, he described himself as someone who has roots in advocacy work, particularly in San Francisco. Uh, he is new to the position. Uh, he's been in the position for six months. That office has seen tremendous turnover. Um, and I think it tells us something about how this particular mayoral regime is unable really to manage the, the very urgent and important question of homelessness. So we now have a deputy mayor in place and I wish him well on what is a very difficult task. But um, I think that what in particular, we asked him to consider and asked for the mayor's office to, to deliver a policy vision on is the sheer scale and scope of the housing crisis in LA. That not only do we have 70,000 people who are unhoused, we know that when the eviction courts reopen later this year, which they will, thousands more will be evicted and there is no place for them to go. What then is that policy vision? What is the plan? What is the plan for social housing? What is the plan to use the federal money that is now available? The scale of this is even greater than the Great Depression. So what then is the policy vision? And quite frankly, in my living memory, I have not heard Mayor Garcetti issue any vision that uses the phrase social housing or public housing or that really puts forward. Um, 
a set of meaningful ideas about how to actually keep people in their homes or house those who've become unhoused. We have a whole set of band-aid solutions and shuffling poor people around, which really leads me to believe that we don't really want to house poor people in the city. Um, that so we just want to see them gone. We just want to see them gone. And what is your vision for what the policy of the city of Los Angeles should be and could be? Yeah, so during the pandemic, in the reports that we did, much of it worked with Gary Blasey, but also with movements like the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project, um, No Olympics LA, and so forth. We were very clear about how the moment of the pandemic, the public health emergency, actually give governments tremendous legal authority and possibility, and of course, federal resources like FEMA money, to put into place things like Project Room Key, which could have become acquisitions. Project Home Key does a bit of that, but at only a tiny scale. But I think most importantly, what we have been pushing for is really to take seriously the crisis of tenants. So rent cancellation and the cancellation of rental debt is one of the most important things we can do as a public policy measure to keep people in their homes. If we think that's expensive, trust me, it is so much more expensive to rehouse people once they become unhoused. And the second thing we need to do, and there's a lot of national conversation around this, is to take seriously this as an opportunity for a, a really brilliant vision of social housing. A social housing development authority, a vision of social housing that is not just a replication of public housing as sort of a ghettoized sort of housing that is stigmatized and that segregates the poor, but social housing for all. A homes guarantee. Social housing, social housing for all. Ananya Roy of the uh, UCLA Luskin Institute on Inequality and Democracy. Ananya, thanks for your all your work on this, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about what to watch on TV while we wait for the pandemic to end. Ella Taylor has some answers. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. Hi, John. Hope you're well. Yes, thank you. Well, today we want to talk about The Man Who Sold His Skin. That's a Tunisian film about immigration that's been nominated for the Oscar for Best International Feature. What did you think of The Man Who Sold His Skin? Uh, well, today we have, we're going to be looking at two films that are strikingly beautiful to look at. Um, and uh, this one I really, really loved. Um, it's directed by a young woman director named Kauta Benhania. I don't know if I pronounced her name right, um, who got the idea for this movie when she saw uh, she was attending a lecture or something at the Louvre. I guess she lives in France or, or works in France. 
And um, one artist had uh, tattooed um, the back of, uh, of his subject. And that is actually what this story um, revolves around. There's a young um, Tunisian man who um, is canoodling with his um, girlfriend who they adore each other um, on, the on the train, on the subway and proposes to her, but makes the mistake of shouting out loud, revolution, we will have freedom, which of course, um, he's in Syria, I neglected to mention. <laughs> crucial point here. <laughs> crucial point. Um, and lands himself overnight in prison um, as a suspected terrorist, but um, manages to get out of there on a diplomatic technicality. Um, but uh, his lover is wrenched away into an arranged marriage by her parents to um, a Syrian apparatchik, a pompous Syrian apparatchik, whom she doesn't want to marry. And they decamp to Belgium, where the husband has a diplomatic post. Um, for his part, young Sami, who is devastated by this, um, escapes to Lebanon where he spends a year and meets um, a Belgian allegedly progressive artist um, uh, who asks him, who sees him um, naked from the waist up, I think, and if I remember correctly, and asks him whether he can buy his back <laughs> in order to put an artwork on it. Uh, and the artwork is um, a visa for Belgium. So because, not because he, he, he has a liking for art or the artist particularly, but be, because he wants to get um, Belgian citizenship so, so that he can be with his lover, he agrees to this and in no time at all, um, he gets his Belgian credentials, something that's incredibly hard to do in, in real life for a refugee, and finds himself objectified in an exhibit where he has to sit naked from the waist up with this visa on his back. So instead of being catapulted to freedom, he is catapulted into a new imprisonment, if you like, in, in his back. The film is, and then uh, all sorts of, he's still trying to get together with his girlfriend and she really loves him. She doesn't love her husband. And he is a very soulful, somewhat naive young man. He opens a ambivalent friendship, I guess I would call it, with uh, the artist's assistant, who is played by the great actress Monica Bellucci, who we don't see around very much uh, anymore. And she's in a either blonde hair or a blonde wig. And uh, to, I should say no more about the, the plot, except that I felt that it was somewhat rushed through and overly neat towards the end, given how conceptual this film is. Um, but it is both lovely to look at, just gorgeous, um, and a strikingly original film about the many ambiguous meanings of freedom and about coming home. What she's done here, uh, I think, is to put together an elite art world with a powerless refugee world and see how they play off each other. And of course, it's not very, it's not a great. Uh, um, situation, but the young man Sammy manages in ways I won't uh, uh, relate to 
um, liberate himself uh, and possibly his girlfriend too. And the denouement of the film suggests, I mean, it, it handily disposes of the uh, common perception that all refugees want to take out permanent citizenship in the West. Most of them would rather go home. And there is a way in which this young man um, manages to go home um, that may or may not be good for him uh, in his person, but uh, is certainly very good for his soul. I love this film. It also has the distinction to be opening this Friday at the Lemley Royal on the day that the Lemley Royal actually opens back up again. And I, I really recommend it, but you can also stream it um, on Lemley's virtual website. And you can also find it at something called the Loft Cinema, um, which is a, a virtual cinema in both cases, actually in all three cases, you will have to pay. Um, at the loft, it's $12 and uh, the others, whatever they charge for their tickets. But I found it, uh, you know, it's a combination between satire, drama uh, with comic overtones. And I was very taken with it. So while the central figure is a refugee, the, the artist is also an important presence here. And in this film, I just want to underline the artist is not the lonely hero that we're familiar with uh, from Hollywood. He's the villain. This is not... Kirk Douglas as Van Gogh in Lust for Life. It's not even Ed Harris as Jackson Pollock. It's a uh, exploitative and unappealing figure for a, a admittedly world success, the most successful artist in the world, known for putting his name on uh, common objects, and that's what's uh, made him famous. So it's sort of for the refugees and against the artist in the the uh, art world, and that alone makes it somewhat different from films that we are familiar with. Yes, and I think it's also a, a dig at what's happening in the art world, that there are a lot of artists who are basically entrepreneurs and very market-driven. So can you recommend a, a second film that's not about refugees? The film is called Muffy, which <laughs> is um, a term in a derogatory term in Afrikaans for weak or effeminate. Uh, and illegal, given that at the time the movie is set, which is in 1981, when the apartheid regime was still in its heyday, also illegal. Um, and it's about a young man, a young Afrikaner named Nicholas van der Swart. And he plays uh, a young boy in his teens, a very beautiful young boy, who is doing what all white boys over the age of 16 had to do in 1981, which is enlist for the military. And he's immediately sent after an absolutely brutal um, basic training to the border with South Angola, where the South African apartheid regime is engaged with an anti-communist, anti-black um, struggle uh, with the Angolans. And, and it's a pretty brutal place to be, but that is not the main subject of the movie. Um, so young Nicholas represents a generation that is drawn in to defend the indefensible, which is uh, the apartheid um, regime. But he's also there as a young, probably gay, um, fledgling man who's not quite sure of his sexual identity, but um, it sharpens up um, in basic training where he becomes attracted to another Africana rec recruit. 
the wider theme of this movie is the toxic masculinity that is carefully cultivated um, in military training almost everywhere, actually, um, uh, but with a particular brutality in South Africa, their basic training commander is just an awful person, um, very sadistic and so on. And this is very difficult for Nicholas, whose leanings, political leanings are such as they are, are different, but he, need, he has to conform. So one of the visual um, loveliness of this film is the contrast between um, the beauty of the young men's bodies, which are often seen either wholly naked or half naked, it's very loving towards their bodies, contrasted with the ugliness of their rhetoric as they conform to this very um, brutal masculine you know, rhetoric and behavior. So it's a melodrama um, in some ways, very beautifully shot. It's a lovely looking move, movie, but it's there really to show, he's a stand-in and Nicholas is beautifully played by a, a young South African actor. Young Nicholas, who's very beautiful himself, um, is there to represent a whole generation that came of age in the 1980s that apparently um, studies have shown was deeply scarred both by their indoctrination and the shame that they were made to feel if they happened to be gay. So it's a significant um, addition. Moffi is a, a significant addition to South African queer uh, movies, and I don't know, you know, how many others there have been. Certainly, one of the first, if not the first, that I've ever seen, and uh, another one that I highly recommend. The Guardian called it remorseless, and Sight and Sound called it a gut punch of a film. I've only been able to see the trailer, but even that is very hard to watch. It's so, so violent and so vicious. Is how how much of that is occupies the rest of the film. There is a lot of violence, uh, both in terms of you know the fighting that that goes on both internally and externally. But there are it's a very emotional film and very tender towards um, its young protagonist and to his you know emerging sexuality because his parents don't know about this either. Um, the Africana uh, community in South I grew up with a lot of uh, South African friends in London because there were many expats who had either been imprisoned for their anti-apartheid activities or had just emigrated, and they tend to be much less um, conservative than the Africana community, which also had a, you know, very uh, rigid um, moral stance. So he's in a particularly um, unfortunate position. His, par his parents are very loving, but they're quite clueless as to A, the fact that he's probably gay, and B, the fact that he's being brutalized um, by the, the South African army. Mafi, the film about the South African military during apartheid in the 80s, and the young man who knows he is different, is starting to run on video on demand this weekend. We also talked about The Man Who Sold His Skin, the Tunisian film about the refugee that's been nominated for Oscar for Best International Feature. And that's a screening at the Lemley Virtual Cinema starting on Friday. 
and in person at Lemley's Royal in Santa Monica. Can we say that Muffy can be seen all over the place, like YouTube, Google Play, Voodoo, and, and uh, Amazon and Apple, because, you know, that means that large numbers of people can see it, which is not really true of the other, the other movie. Okay. Ella Taylor is our TV critic. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure, John. One more thing. It's time for your Minnesota moment. News from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Today's news, St. Paul has created a guaranteed income pilot program for artists. For 18 months, starting now, 25 artists in the St. Paul neighborhoods of Frogtown and Rondo will each receive $500 a month in unrestricted support. The artists are part of a new pilot program from an organization called Springboard for the Arts. The program was inspired by the City of St. Paul's People's Prosperity Pilot and the Mayors for a Guaranteed Income Network. More about them in a minute. It will not be funded by tax dollars at this point, but by two local foundations, the McKnight Foundation and the Bush Foundation, which are both based in the Twin Cities. Over the past year, creative workers in the region have received more than a million and a half dollars in direct aid on an emergency basis because of the COVID pandemic. The announcement of the Guaranteed Income Pilot Program for Artists comes just a couple days after the NEA, and that's the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Bureau of Economic Analysis released a report about the toll that the pandemic has taken on employment in the arts. In the third quarter of 2020, 27% of musicians were unemployed, along with 52% of actors and 55% of dancers and choreographers. Under this guaranteed income program for artists, recipients will be selected at random from an eligible pool of artists who have already received support from the Emergency Relief Fund of the Springboard Program, and at least 75% of them will be black, native, or people of color. St. Paul is not alone in doing this. On March 25th, San Francisco announced its own guaranteed income pilot program for artists. That will start in May. They'll fund 130 local artists in neighborhoods hit hardest by the pandemic, and they will each receive $1,000 a month for six months. This program is taking applications through April 15th. As far as we know, San Francisco and St. Paul are the only cities in the United States to establish guaranteed income pilot programs for artists. The groups that are supporting this, Springboard for the Arts, is an economic and community development organization in Minnesota. They describe themselves as for artists and by artists. They have offices in Fergus Falls, also in St. Paul. They say their goal is to help artists make a living and a life and to help communities connect to the creative power of artists. This Guaranteed Income for Artists program is part of St. Paul's People's Prosperity Guaranteed Income Pilot. This provides 150 families in St. Paul with $500 a month in guaranteed income for 18 months. 
This is being offered to families participating in a different program, College Bound St. Paul. This is the city's college savings initiative, which is providing every child born to a St. Paul resident on or after January 1st, 2020, with a college savings account and a $50 seed deposit. The families will get, in addition to $500 a month, uh, they'll get a $10 bonus deposit to each child's college-bound St. Paul account. The idea of St. Paul's Guaranteed Income Pilot Project is simple. Give cash to families on a no-strings-attached basis so they can buy the things they need. The program website explains, quote, for far too long, too many programs that provide support for poor people have focused on telling families how much, where, and what to spend their money on. But families know best what they need. So this program gives them the flexibility to determine how to spend these resources, close quote. And this is part of a nationwide program of Mayors for a Guaranteed Income. Mayors for a Guaranteed Income had its first Guaranteed Income Pilot Project in Stockton, California. This is the work of the famous mayor, Michael Tubbs, who started this in June 2020. Uh, it now consists of mayors of dozens of cities, including heroes of ours like Chakwe Antar Lamumba in Jackson, Mississippi. Mayors in big cities like Philadelphia, Dallas, Houston, Baltimore, and Pittsburgh. In Southern California, the mayors who participate are from Long Beach, West Hollywood, and Compton, and also Eric Garcetti of Los Angeles. The only mayor in Minnesota to be part of Mayors for a Guaranteed Income is Melvin Carter of St. Paul. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this program. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.